Well, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the book of John, John chapter 14, John chapter 14. Um, as we've said, as we've been walking through the gospel of John, the gospel according to John, there's really only one gospel, and the gospel is a word that just means good news, and so there's really only one good news, and that's the good news about Jesus Christ. There is no one else like him, and he alone gives us uh, the security and the peace that um, Jesus, that God wants us to have, and he alone is the way to the Father. Uh, the, the four Gospels, as they're sometimes called, are four accounts of that good news. They're four summaries of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. And so they're four, we, they're four biographies, almost, of uh, of the person of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And they give us accurate accounts, historically accurate accounts of, um, of his life. And they're four Gospels because they fit together complementary, complementarily. Uh, and uh, they, they give us together the whole person of Christ. They give us the whole picture of Christ. And so each one brings their own idiosyncratic personalities and understandings of Christ. And and together they give us a picture of Jesus. And the Gospel of John in particular is written so that you and I might believe, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's important to remember that that's a present tense because in particular the Gospel of John I think is one of the areas that we've seen him highlight is for those who are discouraged, those who are frustrated, and those who feel down and out, uh, maybe persecuted for their faith, maybe uh, they're wondering, is it worthwhile to continue to hold on to Christ? I, I believe the Gospel of John is written in part, not only for this reason, but in part to encourage those people. And so the passage that we're, we have today in particular is on that theme of, of how, to, how God wants us um, to be encouraged and to continue to be encouraged by believing in His Son. So I'm going to ask you to, to look in your Bibles to John chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse 1 and we'll go down through verse 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will, do all, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we pray one more time that you would 
prepare us to see your word and that you would calm our hearts and help us to receive all that you have for us in it. It's in the name of your Son, our Savior, our way to you that we pray. Amen. Well, we live in what one commentator has called the age of anxiety, uh, the anxious age. We live in a, a world of anxiety and nervousness and fear. Um, and if I was to ask you, what, what, are, what do you think the most common causes of anxiety are? You might say, well, the uncertainty of knowing where we're going to rest our head at night or the uncertainty of knowing if we're going to be able to, to pay for our, all of our bills tomorrow. The, basically, the uncertainty, the unknown of whether or not our essentials will get met. And if you said that, you would be not alone. Many people believe that. The problem is um, there's no evidence that having those things met actually reduces anxiety. I was reading a very interesting article um, by uh, a medical journalist, uh, Timothy Newman, I think his name was. And uh, he, he was saying that in the, the highest income countries across the world, um, severe anxiety disorders are actually more common. That's strange, right? You would think that in a, a country, in a, in a nation that has basically needs met, um, that basically can, uh, can where, where most people have a sa- safety net, if something should happen to them, that they can, uh, that they can pay for their bills. You would think that in, in that kind of society, in that kind of country, that that um, there would be lower rates of anxiety and not not higher and. And the article ended at a very depressing note because he said, well, what, what should we do then? He said, well, the only thing we can know is that at least we're not in it alone. That fear and anxiety and nervousness is not something that is solved by accumulating uh, and having uh, more and more stuff and being able to have um, the, the illusion of control about tomorrow. And yet we will see in our scripture today a better way. That Jesus has a a better way to to deal with anxiety for Christians. And we will see that there's four four implicit and explicit um, objections uh, that are addressed in this passage to to Jesus' solution for anxiety. And then we will we'll turn to apply some of these truths at the end. So what is Jesus' solution? Well, look with me in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word for troubled, is, I've said this before, it's, it's the, the word that describes a stormy sea, right? So, so let not, so if you imagine a sea or, or an ocean or a lake and it's choppy and there are waves blowing and and there's a storm, and there's dark clouds overhead, and there's winds blowing. Uh, many of us know what it is to have that in our heart, to know what it is like to feel like at the core of our spirit, that the waves are blowing, and, and, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are crashing. Many of us know what it's like to, to, to feel like there is a storm at the center of our being, and Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Do not allow that storm to rage in your soul. He says, instead, believe, and that is the same word for have faith. So have faith. So you fight fear with faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. A couple of important things about that. Again, uh, all those verbs are present tense. 
So he's not saying you can say, I believe and all your fear will dissipate. Uh, rather, he's saying that the discipline of forcing ourselves to, to trust in the Lord and forcing ourselves to believe in him and forcing ourselves to have faith in Christ uh, over time fights that anxiety. And it's a discipline which you and I must commit ourselves to again and again and again. And he doesn't just say believe in God. Don't just, he doesn't just say believe that there is a God who exists, that there is a higher power. He says believe in God, believe also in me. Those are parallel statements that to believe in the God of the Bible is to believe in Jesus. Because Christians worship one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus says believe in God, believe also in me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and that, that I am the way to the Father that I've made a a way for you to come near to him, to be his children, to be those whom he commits himself to, that he will not allow things to happen to, that he will hold fast when the storm blows. Uh, There's the the story of Jesus in the boat with the disciples in in Mark 4, and and Jesus uh, had a long day, and so he goes to take a nap. Naps are great after a long day of ministry. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat and the the storm rises and the wind blows and the waves crash over the sea and the disciples are, are, are terrified and they're freaking out and they wake Jesus up and Jesus, you can almost imagine, is just barely awake and he just looks at them incredulously and he looks out at the storm and says, shh, and everything dissipates and the sea is stilled. And it actually says in Mark 4 that the disciples, before they had feared the ocean, but, or they had feared the sea, but after Jesus had calmed the waves, they feared a great fear. That they, they saw that he was Lord even of the ocean. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is calling for. Faith in his identity as God and his identity as, as the one who brings us to God and the one who purchases a way so that you and I could be right with God and be justified by God and be forgiven by God. Fight fear with that kind of faith, with with the faith that knows that the Son has found a way for me to come to the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus in verse 11, just Jesus is so tender and gentle, and he recognizes that so often our, our capacity to believe because of that reason is so weak. And so he says in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father, that I have this, this relationship with the Father that is more intimate than, than, than soul and spirit, that is more intimate than bone and marrow, that he and I just, we, we share in one another. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, what are the works that he's referring to? They're referring to all the signs that he's done throughout the Gospel of John, all the miracles that he's done. All the way that he turned water into wine and cleared out the temple and he walked on the stormy sea and he provided food for 5,000 people and the way that he raised the centurion's son, the, the, the way that he healed the man who was uh, lame from birth and the man who was blind, born blind and how he raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, believe in those works. If, if you can't believe because of the words that I'm telling you, remember my past acts of faithfulness to you. If, if, you're, if reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel, of the good news, of, the, of your relationship with the Father because of me, 
If that doesn't do the trick, remind yourself of all the ways that I've been faithful to you in the past. Believe in me. Believe in me. And in this passage, there are four, uh, four implicit or explicit objections that are dealt with. Four objections that are dealt with um, to this, this idea of fighting fear with faith, of, of, of fighting this anxiety and this nervousness and this fear that we often feel with faith in, in the Son. And, and the first objection is something like this. It's, it's, it's more implicit than explicit. He's not here. So it's great that you say that I should trust Him. It's great that you say I should believe in Him and have faith in Him, but He's not here. And so Jesus says this in verses 2 and 3. In, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, Jesus here is referring to the fact that he's going to come again at the end of time. We Christians believe that Jesus will return. He will return for his church and take his church to himself. And that is called sometimes the, the, the marriage of the Lamb, that the wedding supper of the Lamb, that, um, that this union of Christ with his people at the end of time is, is referred to as a marriage elsewhere in the Bible, for example, in Revelation. And it's this idea that Jesus... When he returns, we'll, we'll, we'll marry his bride. And there's, it's the image of, of the expectation that a betrothed couple has looking forward to their wedding day uh, that Jesus says, that's how you ought to wait for me. And this is the same imagery that Jesus is using in verses 2 and 3. It's the image of, uh, of a first century Jewish wedding. We've, of course, seen that there is wedding uh, imagery and themes throughout the Gospel of John, most notably when uh, Jesus turns water into wine, and uh, when John the Baptist in chapter 3 refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom, and that Jesus is the groom himself. And so, so it, it's not a surprise that John has this language, this imagery um, in, on his mind as he's writing this, and he, he, he helps us understand the return of Christ this way. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If, I, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In the first century, um, Jewish families in the, in, who are more agrarian out in the country, they would, when they got betrothed, the, the, the male would go, and he would go and add on an estate, uh, add on a wing to his father's house. And so some of these, and some of you women are thinking, thank God that has changed. But they would go, and they'd build on an extra wing, and they'd build on extra rooms, and they'd build on a family apartment, and uh, onto the, the house of their, of their father. And the father would wait and wait until that house, that wing, that, that addition was ready. And then he would tell his son, go and get her. And so Jesus uses this language of he's going back to prepare a place for his people. He's going back to prepare a place for them. He's, he's in heaven and he's preparing history. He's preparing the new heavens and the new earth to, for his bride, for his church, for his people, for us. So if I go to prepare a place for you, if I'm, if I'm adding on this, this wing to my father's mansion, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. In other words, I'm not going to leave my bride at the altar. I'm not going to abandon her on the day of her expectation. I'm not going to turn tail and run. I'm going to be with her and her with me forever. And you ask, well, who is the bride? The bride is all those who believe in Jesus. All those who have faith in him. Jesus is making this promise to you that like a young man cannot wait to get married and take his wife to himself. So Jesus is even now preparing a place for us in heaven so that he can take us with him. So the answer, uh, so, so if the objection is, well, he's not here, the answer is, but you can take it to the bank that we will be with him forever. And what's the second ob- objection? The second objection is, um, Thomas says it in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Uh, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? It's the idea uh, Thomas is trying to say, I don't understand Jesus, because Jesus just said in verse 4, and you know the way, to where I'm going, and Thomas says, actually, I don't. I, I don't understand Jesus. You, you, this is a, a fear that is bred by ignorance and un, the unknown. It's, it's fear that comes out of, I, I, I don't understand. I know the words that you're saying. They form sentences, and they're entering into my brain, but I, I can't make sense of them. I can't, and so Jesus responds. One of the most iconic verses in the whole gospel is verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas says, I don't know the way. Jesus says, you do. That's me. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, you'll see that life is a theme that is used throughout the Gospel of John. He's called the light of life, the light of the world who gives life to the world. He, this idea of raising people from the dead, it happened with the centurion's son. He, he, he heals the man who's born lame from birth and born blind from birth. And he, he heals, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And of course, the, the gospel will consummate with him himself being risen from the dead. That life is an important theme in the gospel of John. And, and same with truth. That Jesus comes to shine the light of the world that we could no longer walk in error but walk in truth. But the word way, the word way which is highlighted here, which is slightly more emphatic than truth and life in this sentence, the word way actually only shows up in the Gospel of John twice. It's very interesting. The other place that it shows up is in chapter 1 which is citing, those of you who've heard me preach on the Gospel of John know what I'm going to say next, which is citing Isaiah. There's actually only two uses of the word way uh, in the Gospel of John, two parts of the Gospel. One is in chapter 1, which is citing gospel, uh, which is citing the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, and this section right here. And it's Isaiah 40, verse 3, which we read earlier in our service together. Prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight the way. The valleys will be lifted up and the hills will be lowered. That's, that's the way that he's talking about. And Jesus says, that, that way is me. 
Of course, Isaiah 40 is the picture of Yahweh, the king, the God of the Old Testament, coming down from heaven and trampling down his enemies and coming to rescue his people in war. And Jesus says, I, I am that way. That my body is the place where the, where the Father will enter into history and take action to rescue his people. My body is the valley that will be filled in and the hill that will be cut off. That the way to the Father is the Father's way to you and it's me. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus is trying to tell you that God is going to purchase the victory for his people by my defeat on the cross and that he's going to bring you all life by my death and that I will be crushed so that you can be forgiven. When Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, I am the place that God will enact and accomplish his victory for his people. I am the place. My body is the place. This is where what you are looking at right now is exactly where God will come down and meet you on the cross. So when Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, open your eyes. I'm right in front of you. I am the way. Which is why the second half of this verse is so necessary. And it makes so much sense. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is there any other way to accomplish the victory for the people of God except through the death of the Son of God? Can there be any other way to the Father except through Him? Can there be any other way that you could be made right with God except for the Son being crushed for you? Could there be any other way that the angel of death could pass over you than, than his blood be smeared over the doorpost? Could there be any other way that you could be forgiven than that he would be condemned? Could there be any other way that you could escape the disaster that is to come than that he drinks the cup of the wrath of God? This idea that Jesus, when Jesus says, I am the way, I'm, I'm the one, that your way to the Father is the Father's way to you. That there's no, there's no other way that, that it, you, man can be made right with God. There's no other way that, that you and I can come before the Father unless it's over the Son. Oftentimes, our, our culture talks about God like he's up at the top of this mountain and you have to find your way up up him and there's all these different paths that you can travel up the mountain and you can get up to the top and jesus says no 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 the only way to the father is when he comes down the mountain to you and the only way that he does that is through me i am the way see see thomas here is saying i don't i I don't know I don't know how I can be made right with God. I don't know how I can get to the Father. I I know what you're saying, Jesus, but I don't understand it. And Jesus is saying, press in deeper. That if you know me, you'll know the Father. And if you have seen me, you'll see the Father. To know me is to know the Father. And so... the, the question of uncertainty, Jesus answers by saying, well, if you know me, you know what you need to know to come near to the Father.
Uh, Philip answers. Here's the third objection Philip says in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's, it's the objection of, of, is this really all that there is? Isn't there more to this? Jesus, I, I know that you're saying that to believe in you, to, to have faith in you, will we'll, we'll fight fear, but is that really all that there is? is there, isn't there more? To which Jesus responds in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have to uh, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus' point is, what more could the Father give you than what he's already given you in me? What more does heaven have more to give If the Father has given you the Son, if God has given you Himself, what price of greater, what what pearl of greater price could there be? What what greater gift of value does God have for you? He's already given you His Son. He's already given you Himself. If you say to the Father, Isn't there more that you have than Jesus for us? Jesus says, How little do you think of me? Believe me, have faith in me, trust in me. This is what God has to give you, the greatest gift that God has for you from heaven. He's already given you. And there's one more implicit objection in verse 12. It's truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's the, it's the objection. Um, what difference does this make? To, to trust in you, Jesus, what difference does it make? And Jesus answers, he says, there's almost two things that he answers with. He says, on the one hand, the one who believes in me, the one who trusts in me, will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. That's kind of an interesting turn of phrase. I, I think that phrase, greater works than these, refers not to value or significance than what Jesus does on the cross, but to a greater number of works. So Jesus' public ministry is three years, and the majority of us who follow Christ will probably follow Christ for more than three years, and we'll have more and more opportunities to respond in faithfulness to the Father. So Jesus is the one who trusts in me, the one who believes in me and does the works that, that he, he follows my example, he imitates me. He'll, he'll do more numerically than I do because I've, my ministry is short. I'm going up to the Father. But then he says this in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. What, he's talk- what is he talking about? He's talking about prayer. When you and I pray to the Father, when we pray in faith, when we pray because we're trusting the Lord and we believe in Christ, we trust in the good news of the gospel, 
What Jesus is promising us in verses 13 and 14 is that we will have a more rewarding prayer life. That our prayer life will will be more tender and sweet to us and we will see God answer it more positively. The answer is, why is that? Well, because when we're asking the Lord in faith, when we're trusting Him, when we're believing in the promises of the gospel, that then the that the requests that we have will be in line with the nature of God, and therefore the Father would want to answer them because the Father would be glorified in the Son. If you ask, Jesus goes on, he says in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, in accordance with my nature, in my personality, in my mission, he says, I, I really don't care about giving you that new Mustang. Like, that's just not, that's just not, something that I really am concerned with. But what I do care about is giving you the strength to get through your friend having cancer. What I do care about is giving you the strength to share the gospel with those at work. And what what I do care about is giving you the endurance to get to bedtime with your children. Yeah, the Father's glorified in those things. If you ask me anything in my name, in accordance with my name, in, in accordance with my nature and my personality, that I will do. So, so the one who, who fights fear with faith, who believes in the Son and trusts in the Son and comes to the Father through the Son, that one will have a more rewarding prayer life. The, the, the big point of this passage is all under this, this heading of this first verse that we should not let our hearts be troubled. We should not let ourselves, the center of our being and our identity, be tossed about like like a storm on the waters. We ought not to give in to anxiety and fear, and we ought to fight that fear with faith. Now, I have some things to say to help apply this that I think will, my hope and my prayer is that uh, these things will be very practical and helpful for you um, because most of us have times in our lives where we do wrestle with anxiety and we do wrestle with fear. And most, and some of us have times that we wrestle with anxiety and fear more than others of us. And so my, my prayer, my hope is that as we think about how to apply these, this passage in some very practical ways, um, that this will be helpful for us. And here's the, the first uh, practical application that I have for us from, from this passage. God cares about your anxiety. Let me just say that again. God cares about your anxiety. If you think about this, God is inspiring through his Holy Spirit, this book, this, this gospel according to John. And he's thinking about how the disciples felt when, when Jesus said, I'm going away. And he thinks you know, that's going to be really, really helpful to record for later generations how, how Jesus responded to that. Like God providentially knew there's going to be this time where some of my disciples in Holden, Maine are going to feel anxiety sometimes, and I want to make sure they have instruction from my word how to deal with that fear and anxiety. God cares about your fear and your anxiety. And this is not the only place that he says this. And for example, in 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because you're dear to him. 
and tender to him. And he hasn't forgotten about you. And he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. God cares about your anxiety. And so that leads us to the second application. He's asking you to trust him. He's asking you and me to trust him. To believe in him. To put our faith in him. And maybe we've never done that before in our entire life. And maybe we've never taken that step of faith, or maybe we've taken that step of faith a thousand times. And God is saying, trust me. Trust me with that. Believe in me. Give yourself to me. Trust me that I am in control, that I'm in charge, that I haven't forgotten about you, that I'm not going to leave you, that I've provided a way for you to come to me and for me to come to you. Trust me. That's what the Father's asking. Which means, number three, that we need to discipline ourselves so that we habitually fight fear with faith. This is not something that happens once in our lives. This is not something that happens twice in our lives. This is not something that happens three times. This is something that happens for many of us all day, every day. And God is saying, you need to learn how to fight, how to habitually fight, how to engage in the fear and anxiety that Satan wants to put into your heart with faith in me. That we need to discipline ourselves, that when we start to feel anxious and fearful, that we need to discipline ourselves to trust in the Lord. I say, well, how do we do that? Number, let me give you number four. We need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to learn day in, day out, minute in, minute out, second in, second out, when your toddler just will not eat his dinner, this is totally theoretical, and you're worried that he's going to wake up in the middle of the night and that he's going to, uh, that he is going to uh, not be able to sleep through the night because he's hungry and he won't eat his dinner, she says, fight that fear, fight that anxiety with faith. When you feel it start to overtake you, you need to discipline yourself to trust in him, to believe in him, to cast all your anxieties on him. You need to preach the gospel to yourselves in that moment and say, God has not forgotten me. He loved me enough to send his son to die on the cross for me. That He loved me enough to bring me into his family, to adopt me as his own, to sanctify me with the, the blood of his son. He loved me enough to, to extend to me the right hand of fellowship when I didn't deserve it. When I, like Peter, had denied him again and again. He's not going to leave me in this moment. He's not going to, why would he leave me in this moment if he hasn't left me till now? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves again and again and again. I also think this means, number five, that we need to remind ourselves of God's past acts of faithfulness to us. We need to remind ourselves of God's past acts of faithfulness to us. Um, that a good practice to have is somewhere in your house, you should have somewhere where you record all the ways that God has been faithful to you up till now. In our house, up on the second floor, right on the, the bookshelf, right next to, as far away from the child's room as possible, there's a, there's a uh, clay jar. We call the, thing, the Thanksgiving jar, and we 
we write down acts, things that God has been so good to us that we're so thankful for, and we put it in that jar. And I, I know that seems silly to discipline yourself to be thankful in that way, but when you've been through the thick of it, and when you feel like the, the earth is caving in beneath you and it's going to swallow you up, to be able to say with confidence, he hasn't let me down up until now, that might just carry you through the storm. We need to discipline ourselves in particular to remember his past acts of faithfulness to us. Number six, prayer Prayer is both a means of and a reward for trusting in the Lord. So if you're wondering, well, how do I do that? How do I cast all my anxieties on him? You, you pray. You come near to him. This is, what, this is what this passage connects it to. It connects it to prayer at the end of chapter 14. It connects it to praying in his name. That's why Paul says in Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What's Paul saying? He's saying that you bring your cares and your concerns, that you're when you feel anxious and when you feel fearful, the way that you deal with those things, the way that you cast your anxieties on them is you bring them before him. It's helpful for me. I know this is going to sound weird, but it's helpful for me when I'm feeling particularly anxious and particularly nervous and fearful about something. It's helpful for me to come and, and just actually have my hands out open like this and say, Lord, this is, I know this is yours. Take it. That does nothing. It's not a magic trick. It's a way to remind myself that the Lord is in control, that we hand those things over to the Lord. Prayer is both a means of and a reward for, uh, both a means of and a reward for trusting in Him in this way. I'm going to say numbers 8 and 9 might seem contradictory, but they're not. Uh, Number 8 is this that Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is sufficient for you. Now, what does he mean by that? When he says, believe me that I'm in the Father, does he mean that God doesn't give us anything else to help us fight this fear and anxiety? Well, plainly not, because later on in the chapter, in just a couple minutes, he's going to say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and in the meantime, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So the son, is not the, uh, the son is not the only way uh, that the Father helps us fight fear in our lives. The Son is not the only way that God fights fear in our lives, but He is enough for us in that He's sufficient for us and He's the foundational way. That if we have Jesus, if, if we can trust in Him, we add the other things to that. that. In other words, to trust in Him is the starting place. It's okay for some supplemental things we'll talk about in a minute, but we start by casting all our cares and anxieties on him. We start by trusting that he is the way to the Father. We start by trusting that God loved us enough to come down to us through the Son. That's our starting place. Okay, so number nine. I think there are supplemental ways, supplemental ways 
which um, God has given us, sometimes in common grace, to help us deal with fear and anxiety. There are supplemental ways, sometimes in common grace, that God has given to us to help us deal with fear and anxiety. So it's not a surprise to many of you, but Sunday afternoon and Monday uh, morning are the times of the week that you shouldn't call me because you don't want to talk to me then because I'm just going to be really down and frustrated with myself because I said something in the sermon that wasn't quite right, and I said something else, and I forgot to say this, and I, I missed this point in my application. I'd go, and, and I'm just going to be second-guessing myself. Okay, What's helpful for me to do in that moment is to do something physical, to get some kind of exercise, to do something active, to work that out of my system, to get my... to, to work that anxiety, just to get out of myself, uh, to be able to fight anxiety in that way. That's a supplemental way. That, it's not to say Jesus isn't enough to me, but rather because Jesus is enough for me, because I trust him, I'm going to trust him, I'm going to pray, well, Lord, I know you're going to use your word the way that you want to use it, and I'm going to trust you enough and, and follow you, and then I'm going to go and add, supplement that by, by um, doing something physical. I would put into this category put into this category a variety of medicines which can be helpful uh, for dealing with anxiety. Now, I know that Scott keeps calling me all but doctorate, so I'm on the all but doctor map, but even when I have finished my doctorate, I will still not be able to prescribe medication. So I am lobbying to be able to do when, you know, when you're on the airplane and somebody says, is there a doctor here? And I'm lobbying to be able to say, I can help. I can help you prepare to meet your maker. I'm lobbying for that. I'm lobbying for that, but I think doctors Mike and Dara might, might have something to say. So I am, I, I am going to be very careful about what I have to say and what I don't have to say about this. But there, I, I just felt like I couldn't preach on this topic with integrity without trying to help us understand how all these things fit together. So... God in his kindness and in his common grace has provided medicines and good doctors will tell you that those medicines all have um, benefits and sometimes they have side effects. And, and so if, if it's, I don't believe as a Christian that it's wrong to use medicines to help with anxiety. I think it can be helpful. I think a good doctor will help you be able to sift through the ways in which it can be helpful and the ways in which some side effects might be negative. So all I want to say is the first step for Christians, the first step, almost certainly not the last step, for some of us who in particular wrestle and struggle with, with anxiety and fear, the first step is to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. The first step is to draw near through faith. And sometimes the Lord has created us marvelously and wonderfully, wondrously and fearfully, and sometimes our uh, organic chemistry, our physiology, and, and our spiritual life, they, they intermix. And so sometimes getting medicines might be helpful in that context. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying our first step, potentially not our only step, is to cast all our anxieties and fears on him because he cares for us. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm trying to be careful and precise in what I'm saying and say it's not, I, I don't think as a Christian it's wrong to, to use those medicines in a helpful way. Um, but we must turn our eyes to Christ first as our first step to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Let me just, say, let me just end with this last application to, to encourage you. 
there are so many times if you if you wrestle and you struggle with this, you, you know that maybe more often than not, you feel like you give into anxiety and you give into fear. Um, and there are many times where maybe you feel like this is a struggle for you that you do not win. And maybe you're, you're here this morning, maybe there is something that you're feeling particularly anxious about. It's hard to even pay attention to the sermon. Um, and you are really resenting the Lord that he put this topic in front of you this morning. Um, and, and so maybe you're here this morning, you, f- you really feel that. You feel like you're not, you're, you're giving in to anxiety more than you wish you would. I just want to encourage you that so often in Scripture, when fear and anxiety overtakes us, God does not let go of his people. God does not let go of his people. You probably remember the story of Peter when, when God called, uh, when Jesus was walking across the, the sea, and he's walking across the sea, and Peter sees him, and he's like a golden retriever, and he says, Lord, tell me to come to you. And so Jesus says, well, come. And so Peter steps out onto the water and starts walking towards him. And he, he sees him, and then suddenly he takes his eyes off Christ, and he looks at the waves, and he, he hears the wind, and he sees the, the sky, and he begins to sink. And scripture says that he cried out, and Jesus sent out his hand and took hold of him. And so if you're here this morning, and anxiety and fear have overtaken you, and worry robs you of your every friend, I would just encourage you that the Lord does not let go of his people. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that this sermon this morning, this topic this morning, is not a mistake. We thank you that it's not, it's not an accident that we are here sitting under this word this morning. And so I have to believe that maybe some of us really need this, maybe for today and maybe for tomorrow and maybe for three years from now. Father, I pray that you would cause this word to dwell in our hearts richly. Father, I pray that you would help us to rest in the assurance that we have through your Son, who has purchased us from all of our sins, from all of our mistakes, from all of our regrets with his own blood. And so, Father, we pray that you would, we pray that you would use this word to refine us, to give us a sweeter and deeper sense of your love for us. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've given us, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see all that you're going to do in and through us. It's in the name of your Son, our Savior, that we cry. Amen.